Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about how the past year has shown that health and economic activity are intrinsically linked, and how this relationship affects the road ahead. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street, our weekly podcast talking about all things markets, economics and politics. This week, I'm joined again by Will Hobbs, our CIO, and the plan is to grill him on the evolving relationship between health and economic activity. And obviously, the last year has seen health and the economy sort of entangle itself in ways it would have been difficult to imagine from, say, I don't know, 2019 vantage point, not something that we really were expecting on the horizon. So I guess what I'm interested to hear about and and hopefully will prove interesting fodder for, for you, our listeners, is how this entangling might affect the road ahead. So let's see what we can squeeze out of Will. <laughs> so first things first, Will, let's get a brief update on on what are you seeing in, in markets, global economics. We've seen quite a gripping first quarter. We're now sort of well and truly into the second quarter. The world economy seems to be accelerating quite fast. What What's happening here, Will? Yeah, that, that's totally correct, Nikki. You know, the first quarter was really informed or the year so far um, has been formed by a couple of things. At first, um, and we've spoken about this a bit, you know, the very sharp drop in infection rates around, you know, a large parts of the world, which has been, you know, very welcome. Second, a sort of sliding doors moment that, you know, when the Democrats won both of those kind of coin toss Senate runoffs in Georgia and the US in January. And this, these kind of unbelievably tight victories got President Biden's nose over the line in a Senate majority therefore congressional majority, in turn facilitating um, the enactment of a giant slab of further fiscal support for the US uh, and in reality, global economy. There's more expected imminently too. And this is, you know, again, the big story of, sort of, of the moment. So President Biden's American jobs plan and American families plan, so-called uh, spending bills, targeting infrastructure, uh, green in, uh, green incentives, uh, an array of other initiatives could emerge from the congressional gauntlet in the second half of the year, potentially adding another two to three trillion dollars, maybe more uh, of spending over the next decade. Um, there may be some tax increases uh, to pay for some of this. Uh, we'll see. Like I say, all of this is the big sort of discussion at the moment in markets. And the Biden, you know, also, you know, the other point that's been interesting, I think, is that the Biden administration has put forward some proposals for a minimal, minimum international tax rate for corporations. We've spoken a little bit about this on, on this podcast before, which could put an end to this kind of race to the bottom we've seen over the last while uh, in terms of national corporate tax rates. So, so you've got this kind of giant and pretty radical policy experiment going on in the US and therefore world economy. And investors are really just trying to work out what it means for, you know, inflation, growth and everything in between. From the perspective of the pandemic, you know, like I said, case growth, you know, has declined precipitously from the January peak in the developed world. However, um, infections are rising sort of alarmingly sharply in some emerging market countries at the moment, particularly India, India and Brazil. They're, they're two sort of, you know, we're watching very closely. You know, I mean, here, the sort of nationalist spasms of the last decade uh, have certainly not been helpful in fighting a pathogen that 
obviously requires no passport. The experts continue to warn that, you know, until you have global herd immunity, the relative successes and failures of national level vaccination programs will simply mean a lot less. Um, you know, the unvaccinated pockets of the world will continue to provide, you know, fertile ground for, for mutations, variants and so on. Yeah, that's worrying, isn't it? But you mentioned there, I mean, staggering numbers, two to three trillion. And you talked about inflation. I mean, obviously, that's what markets are sort of looking towards. But we had data this week, didn't we, from from the US? And, and so far, it doesn't look like we're seeing that sort of pick up in inflation. No, and you're right <laughs> on the trillions. You're right that trillions have become normalised, haven't they? Yeah. It's really, we've become used to it, but it really is extraordinary in the context of past policy responses. And, and you're right on inflation, not yet. To be honest, I think it'll not be obvious whether we are in a new inflation paradigm. And remember, you know, inflation's been falling for many decades uh, around much of the world. We'll not we'll not know whether we're, we're in a new inflation paradigm for a while yet. There's still an awful lot of noise associated with the crisis itself to work through from a data perspective. So, you know, we're just going to be watching and seeing. But in the meantime, obviously, all of us talking heads, myself included, are filling, uh, trying to fill the void with views on what might and might not happen. <laughs> is, is that a crystal ball I hear whipping out of your pocket? <laughs> no, <note>? try, <laughs> trying to put it in the bin. Yeah. Like, um, but, but actually, I mean, I think it's worth for, for newer listeners that perhaps might want to look back. You and you and Miles Sherry did, did, a, did a great podcast a couple of episodes ago, really focusing on that inflation story really unpacking it so i guess i guess we won't do that here and now but but actually just turning to you know more to focus on growth i know yourself and phil did did a great your monthly video which which gets sent around social media etc your monthly video really talking here about the relationship between health and future economic growth as as i said at the outset I guess it's sort of intuitive, right? You know, you need a you need a healthy workforce and and consumer group. But but just tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, well, it's something I'm interested in personally, and that's obviously <laughs> I sort of bore people with my hobbies in this job. But or I get the platform to do so. You should stop me. But, but <laughs> well, yeah, for it's, now. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but so, you know, so, some of the genesis of this kind of branch of study comes from the contribution of kind of biomedical experts to our understanding of economic history. So, you know, if you think about it, comprehensive data on things like wages uh, and other useful economic data, it's a relatively recent phenomenon. So when we're trying to understand more about past living standards and inequality and so on, you know, academics have had to get a bit more inventive. Now, a good example of this is the sort of huge debate about what life was actually like in England in the early 19th century, early, you know, late 18th century. And this is a period, it's important for, for modern study because it's, it's seen as a period of dramatic, you know, unprecedented societal, political, economic change. Now, through detailed work on available nutrition, combined with modern understanding of the needs of the human body, we can say that at, at this time, around a fifth uh, one in five people within the French and English populations were actually not getting enough food on a daily basis to do any form of meaningful work or work. I think, you know, the, the assessment is that they were capable of doing a couple of hours of slow walking. Now, this insight really changed the prevailing conception amongst economists of what poverty looked like during that period, what it meant for the economy and how much of poverty there was. So it, it shows that this is sort of this is the sort of the starting point, I guess. Okay. So increasingly food becomes more available and then this population 
increases because of that and and therefore drives economic growth is is that the case yeah i mean i think there's yeah that's a bit of it there's three things i guess or, or a few things to sort of note i mean first the amount of, of food available increased substantially second the composition of diets improved which raises the proportion of ingested energy that can be metabolized third improvements in clothing and shelter increased thermodynamic efficiency uh, by reducing the amount of energy lost through radiation of body heat, which I lose now through the top of my head primarily. <laughs> but now, you know, the amazing American Nobel Prize winning economist, uh, economic historian Robert Fogel argued that these combined effects can account for about half of British economic growth since 1790. Wow, that's incredible. Isn't it? I, I really think so. But but that's not it. I mean, the other area, which is really the bit that Phil and I were talking about in our monthly, is the effect that greater nutrition has on brain power, your cognitive capacity. Now, you know, recent global studies have shown clearly that poorly nourished children tend to start school later, progress through school less rapidly, have lower schooling attainment, and tragically perform less well on cognitive achievement tests when older. So several academics have flipped this understanding and applied it to the build-up to the first industrial revolution, this incredible turning point for the entire world that you can argue, you know, hinged on three inventions in the north of England, uh, all in the region of kind of Stockport. So essentially you had a surge in nutritional intake in the 1730s in some part of functional climate. Now, this is when this generation of inventors was born, or at least in their formative years, the inventors that you know came up with these three incredible inventions and many more besides. So several uh, academics are plausibly making the link between that surge in nutrition and the resources lavished on human beings and the resulting economic transformation that came with the first, tra- first industrial revolution. And it would be Lovely to think that nutrition, etc., is is equally available across the board. But I guess I guess we know there are there are pockets even today and even in um, developed countries where that's not the case. But um, just coming back to you know, as you mentioned, the industrial revolution, it, it tends to come up quite quite regularly in these <laughs> podcasts, doesn't it? But but fast forwarding to today, what mm. what can we take from this in in respect to the current context? Yes. I, um, first of all, I'm sorry about the Industrial Revolution. It's a pretty weird addiction, but yeah, well, <laughs> you guys it's will worse. have to live with it. But it is important. It is important. Yeah. I think it is a, it is a real turning point. I'll, I'll hide behind that. But to, to your question, yes, I, I think in many ways it goes back to what you said at the beginning about sort of the entangling of health and the economy. You know, they have long been perceived as separate. You know, you think about separate ministries, all sorts of, you know, but just in consciousness, they've They've always been perceived as separate, even though the reality, as we've discussed, is very different. You know, however, you know, the stratospheric economic cost of this health crisis has served to correct this perception, I think, in in great part. And the result should be or could be, hopefully could be a dramatic change in how we collectively think about the cost benefit of investment in healthcare, vaccines, etc. Now, this would surely be very welcome. You know, you think about it, the billions put into America's um, Operation Warp Speed last year. Uh, you know, this is the uh, the effort to facilitate and accelerate the development of vaccines. They're, you know, those billions are dwarfed by the spending on, you know, the space race or weapons development. So NASA's budget peaked in 1966 at around 0.7% of US GDP. Now, scaled to today's US output, that moonshot effort cost 700 billion, just over 700 billion. Mm-hmm. Roughly comparable, uh, $700 billion, that is, not sterling. So that's roughly comparable to the initial costs of the Pentagon's F-35 fighter program. 
So the tens of billions dribbled on vaccine development uh, are obviously pretty puny by comparison. But so impactful, right? So, yeah, um, yeah no, know, no doubt about that. No, I don't, I don't, I, sorry, I don't want that to be sort of come across as uh, denigrating more that, know. Yeah. Uh, you know, as priorities change, you hope that more of the same can come down the pipeline. Yeah. And obviously a very welcome change of emphasis, as, yeah. as you say. That's exactly right. And, it, you know, and, and the thing is, some are plausibly, I think, arguing that this change of emphasis could conceivably, you know, result in another surge in life expectancy globally, um, which is exactly the opposite of what many people are expecting just after the sort of, you know, the tragedy of uh, of last year, the mass tragedy of last year. You know, already you're seeing quite a bit of excitement around the potential of the new kind of it's described as plug and play uh, as messenger RNA vaccine technology uh, in terms of its potential to revolutionize efforts to immunize against HIV, malaria, flu, and, and, and much more besides. However, more broadly, all of this harks back to the thinking, I think, of an economist, tragically a favorite economist of mine, called Julian Simon, who did a lot of great stuff about, you know, but, but at the center of his work was the intuition that we humans are the world's most precious resource. And the inference being that the more of us there are, the better life gets. However, to make the most of us, you need to lavish resources onto us, education, nutrition, healthcare, now, only then do you get the most out of us, all of our collective innovative genius. Uh, and remember, the point we make a lot, borrowed from Stephen Pinker, is that genius is likely evenly distributed. It does not cluster amongst the already rich or in a particular country, colour or creed. Now, to that extent, you can argue that in the bottom billion people in terms of global income distribution, there are a million people of genius level IQ. We need to make most of all of humankind's resources. I think that's the lesson from, you know, that I was trying trying to hit on from the first industrial revolution and the build-up to it. And one of the results of being more generally better fed, having a more healthy population globally, should be that that that's almost the, the, the farm for future productivity gains, which, which obviously is what we're hoping drives economies to, to grow and, and therefore for portfolios to deliver returns over time. That's that's entirely correct. And, and, you know, so at the centre of long term returns from diversified portfolios, you know, and obviously the living standards is more important. But, you know, we're in the business of trying to sort of maximise our customers wealth, um, you know, to, to whatever extent is possible. So more productivity, that is the really the thing that we're trying to access. And if you think about it, just from that point about the next great idea can come from anyone, any colour, creed, country, whatever. That is also, in a sense, a lesson about why we diversify and don't just have like a sort of macho single bet uh, on one particular country, sector, company or whatever. Because in a way, productivity is much more potentially various than that. No one has the preserve or the right to the next big idea. It could come from anywhere. So you need to design your investment net accordingly and make it so that you don't potentially miss out on the rewards for that next innovative breakthrough wherever that may be or whenever that may be so patience might be a virtue but but also having a bit of humility is is certainly what we would subscribe to i think that's correct yes Nikki. good stuff all right will thanks so much and thank you to our listeners we'll look forward to speaking to you again in a week all investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance this podcast is not a personal investment recommendation 